0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British Royal history. Bridgerton Season 2 is here, we have watched it, we have researched, we have watched press interviews, we've seen everything related to Bridgerton Season 2, and today we have one objective and one objective only, and that is to talk about it, review it, digest it, and express all the feelings about it so if you haven't watched it just hit pause go spend a few days binge it then come back this is your first warning spoilers are abound if you don't want spoilers this is your first warning after that it's pretty much your own fault before we get into today's review i do have a fun announcement and that is that we have an official blog yes we've it's still not necessarily a much of a work in progress anymore. I finally figured out a few things to make it be how I want it to be. But yes, we have an official blog. Britishroyalfanaticpodcast.wordpress.com is where you can go to fully see everything happening at the podcast. I've had a few longer blog posts with some more Royal current events, especially with Prince Andrew lately. Shocker, he's continued to mess up, but it, this is where a lot of the content is going to be uh housed it's going to be the new podcast home we're going to have book reviews we're going to have larger content reviews there's of course going to be other blog posts podcast episodes social media links there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff there you can also learn more about me there so by all means head on over to the official blog it'll be linked in the podcast notes for today wherever it is that you're listening But without further ado, let's get into Bridgerton, the world of Bridgerton. This is your last spoiler on the matter, so if you don't want to hear anything you're not supposed to, at this point, you did it to yourself. So Bridgerton Season 2 came out and was released to the world March 25th. What do we think of the season? It was very fun, it was intense, it was passionate, it had a lot of character to it, and It's a wonderful pairing that brought something different to the show that we'll get into. But first point of discussion to get it out of the way from what the book lovers have read. So when we talked about season one, if you're new here... The Bridgerton television series produced by Shondaland is based off the Bridgerton book series written by Julia Quinn. Julia Quinn is a part of the creative team, but one thing lovers of the book series have noted is that this season deviates greatly from the book. If you've read the book and watched the season, you will take note that a lot is different from this than the original text material. I personally have not read the books, so I don't have a point of reference to know how different they are, but the book and the television show, much like you would expect, especially if you've seen the Harry Potter franchise, they differ greatly, creative liberties were taken, and that is the big critique overall from the season, is that apparently the book is different from the TV show, the TV show is different from the book. But let's get into this review. What did we think of the season? Did we like it? Hell yes, we liked it. This was a fantastic season, a wonderful compliment to season one. We learn so much more about the Bridgerton family. We get a real uh, in-depth look into their dynamic, especially with mother, son, and daughter. Eldest son, eldest daughter. There's really good twists and the deception is very upsetting. The moments of deception really kind of make your heart hurt. But things were different. Things were very different with this season. I fell in love with the characters even more, and it really makes me this want to rewatch this season. This season has a lot of re-watch- rewatchable qualities to it. The characters feel much more settled. The show itself feels more comfortable. It knows what it's doing. The creative team really knows what this bridgerton world is this moderately historical romantic comedy period drama romantic drama they've they've figured out the recipe now and it's really streamlined the show looks beautiful it's really stylized where we get enough of the regency period but it's not trying to be accurate the characters feel even realer they feel more three-dimensional to me whether it's a bigger budget better equipment better writing the actors being more comfortable in their characters it it, it doesn't 100 percent matter to me but when watching it you can feel that the show it feels more comfortable it just feels like they've really gotten into the stride of what this show supposed to be so i cannot recommend this season enough without getting into too many spoilers The first season of Bridgerton, from an objective standpoint, was very sex-driven, and that was commentary on the season's protagonist, Daphne. Daphne was very naive, she didn't know much about marriage or sex or anything like that, so she... In turn, and her season, season one, is very sex-driven. There's sex pretty much in every episode, multiple times per episode, whether it's with Anthony uh, beginning to create his character, or with Simon and Daphne, or getting to know Simon, the Duke. And it's this wonderful objective commentary where we have this woman who's so prim and proper who's naive who grew up not knowing anything about this to now having a you know show that's so debaucherous and very sex driven so that's wonderful commentary there objectively which really sort of throws the history book aside with how scandalous the season was season two is very different we've already established this very you know sexual very um promiscuous show but the this season takes a different stance anthony as we knew from season one was very you know not interested in commitment not interested in emotions he's very much about his duty but this season is much more tender there's much more vulnerability we see a whole gambit of emotions from anthony we see really painful conversations about family love friendship death And it's this different commentary where he grows in a different way. Daphne grew much more confident in her body and in who she was as a woman and as a duchess. Anthony is growing in terms of vulnerability, emotions, being able to communicate, actually understanding that having these emotions aren't necessarily a weakness. Season 2 has really serious conversations, serious moments, very intense moments, but it pairs it with fun, light-hearted, wonderful scenes that shows the show takes itself seriously, but not too seriously to not have fun. But what does this season talk about we've talked objectively what does this season talk about well it of course as we knew walking into it this season's all about anthony anthony lord bridgerton has his moment in the sun he has decided as uh, proclaimed at the end of season one that he is to find a wife he this is his goal this season his mutton chops are gone his hair's cut he's you know the lines are a little bit cleaner he's taking himself a little bit more seriously he's confident now as uh, lord bridgerton as viscount as head of the family and now he's aimed at finding a wife. That is all we knew walking into the season, especially if you knew the books. That's the overall goal. We knew that at the end of the season, he was going to be married. We knew based off press and the introduction of new characters that his that the woman he was going to end up with was uh, Miss Kate Sharma, who brilliant performance done by her, a lot of range with her. That is what we knew walking into it, that somehow, in the end, Kate and Anthony were going to end up together. How they got there is where this season gets wild at times. There's a wonderful dichotomy where everybody's telling Anthony he needs to, you know, trust himself, go for love, love exists, love is real, but he's all about duty and no, love isn't real. There's this wonderful dichotomy in Edwina and Kate Sharma and Lord Bridgerton where... You know, this they're playing off of each other, especially Kate and Anthony, where you can understand why Anthony's drawn to Kate and her independent spirit. She's not afraid to speak her mind. She knows what she wants, she knows who she is in some aspects. But that is the big end goal. Somehow, Kate and Anthony get together. Kate and Edwina are, of course, the children of Lady Mary, who is the daughter of Lord and Lady Sheffield. Lady Mary was cast out of society after she married someone below her social status. And in turn, it caused quite the scandal, and she fled to India with her new husband and her husband's already eldest daughter, Kate. And the two of them together have Edwina, and then the husband dies. Not only is the goal of the season of Anthony to fall in love and marry, which he, of course, eventually does, but we learn more about the Bridgerton family. We learn a lot about what happened to Dad Bridgerton, why did Dad Bridgerton die, how did he die, and how his death affected the family. Dad Bridgerton died after a shooting outing where coming back they were picking flowers he got stung by a bee and died basically in anthony and violet's arms out on the lawn the whole family saw it was very traumatic we as the viewer we see this death happen and you know we learn a little bit more about how the family was and now how the family is and how they're all taking the death differently there's wonderful commentary about how there's the two youngest, Greg and Hyacinth, where they don't know the father, Edward. They just, they don't have any memory, especially Hyacinth was born. Um, Gregory was, I think, just an infant, so they don't know who their father is. We learn more about Eloise. Eloise gets her moment in the sun, to She begins to find her stride, and then it ends so tragically that we'll get to We don't really know what happened to Simon other than he's away. They teased us with Simon and a funeral scene that ended up not making it, which now in hindsight was probably the funeral scene for Dad Bridgerton. But everybody was dressed in black and they teased and thought that they made us, the public, believe that Simon was going to die this season. At least that's how it was presented over here in Podcast World. Lastly, we have our foil family, the Featheringtons. There's the new Lord Featherington comes in. And the chaos ensues where the advertised, very wealthy new Lord Featherington is in fact penniless, and he has completely valueless, empty gemstone mines in America, and Lord and Lady Featherington hatch a scheme to con everybody out of money, only for it to go a little too far. And of course, we cannot have Bridgerton without Lady Whistledown. Lady Whistledown causes many a stir, but... In the end, her identity does get revealed, but not to the public. Eloise is mistaken to be Lady Whistledown by Queen Charlotte, and in turn, a very scathing entry was written about her by Lady Whistledown in order to protect her, but in turn, it gave her away. And Penelope gave you know, showed her hand, Eloise put five and six together, and there's a very, very painful scene between Eloise and Penelope as... Eloise knows the truth. Eloise comes into her own as this wonderful feminist character in the beginning of this suffragette movement in England. And, you know, she she begins to find someone who's, like, her equal and, like, challenges her. And they have wonderful conversations about women's rights and all these no, political conversations. And it's like she's finally found her, her person, but he's really below her in society. And it causes scandal, and Lady Whistledown gets involved. So... Overall, those are the big points in the season over the eight episodes. Anthony finds love. Lord and Lady Featherington have a con. Lady Whistledown's almost found out. The Sharmas make a huge splash. And just the ups and downs. But there's one big deceit that is kept hidden for most of the season. Kate has come into an agreement with Lord and Lady Sheffield. Where if Edwina, when she returns to England for the social season... If she marries by the end of her first season, but specifically a member of the peerage, then she will inherit a wonderful dowry from the Sheffield fortune, Lady Mary will be welcomed back into the family, she will be taken care of, and Kate is free to go back to India to live her life knowing that she has provided for her youngest sister and for her adoptive mother. However, that scheme then begins to unfold where she sets, she sets her up a little bit with the Viscount, Lord Bridgerton, Anthony, and he, Anthony is smitten by the Sharmas because they're different. They know how to carry conversation. They can hold their own in society. They're, you know, sort of. Doe-eyed and rose-colored glasses coming into the season. Anthony's attracted to them, but he's significantly more attracted to Kate. But he goes along with Edwina because it is her season and she's to marry her. It ultimately comes to a head where the scheme is found out at the three-quarter mark through through the season, and the repercussions and fallout ensue. There's that huge twist in deception where Kate Kate tries to keep it close to her heart, close to her sleeve, but as you would expect, um, Lady Danbury figures it out quite quickly, and Lady Danbury helps in the scheme, and ultimately it backfires royally. What were some things that stood out to us at the podcast? The constant conversation around death that makes its appearance quite a few times in this season truly opens up to larger conversations that really... Add a third layer to these characters. It really makes them feel three, three dimensional. We learned that upon the death of her husband, as you would expect, Violet immediately goes into labor. There's a threat that either she will live and the baby will die or the baby will live and she will die. And Anthony has to, you know, make this decision because they won't listen to her. She grieves and like completely shuts down, cuts herself off from the family because she just can't handle it. And she does what she needs to do. But in turn, it places, you know, the eldest daughter, the eldest son. It really puts them in a weird situation because now they sort of have to look after themselves. And there's a wonderful conversation towards the end of the season where Violet and Anthony are really vulnerable and crying and violet goes i'm so sorry that i put you all through that i was grieving i didn't know what to do and i you know you had to go through things you didn't have to so there's wonderful conversations about death grieving how it looks different for everybody how everybody gets through it how anthony really cut himself off and you know he had a complete character shift and it really these conversations around death really explore this dynamic of mother and son and how she just wants him to be happy and she doesn't necessarily mind his you know approach and duty to the family and duty as viscount she just wants her son to be happy but he feels the need to in some ways replace the father and take on all this duty and not have any fun and not find love and love doesn't exist and uh, 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 and so it's a There's these wonderful tender moments between mother and son that I greatly appreciate. But then there's also wonderful moments between Daphne and Anthony, where she looks at him and goes, I've done this before. I've I was in this situation last year and look at me. And there's a wonderful conversation where they get into an argument on the eve of the first wedding between Edwina and Anthony. That spoiler doesn't actually happen where she looks at him and goes, you know, we pity you. You make these decisions on behalf of us and then resent us in the end. You know what does what doesn't bring us together makes us resent you and makes us pity you. we we ultimately pity you, Anthony, because we can see you're not happy. and you know you can see him in his eyes go, "Whoa, okay." And you know, there's these people feel real. They have these wonders. This season really added this third layer to, to the family. We learn a little bit more about Colin, how he can't really give up the past. We learn about Benedict, where he is trying to find his way as the second. But um, when Anthony spares off all hope of love and in a fit of mania, looks at him and goes, you need to take yourself seriously. And But there's also wonderful commentary and a theme of, you know, yes, duty to family, but duty to friendship. Eloise and Penelope, their whole friendship gets put in a very precarious state where it ultimately falls falls apart. The season ends where Penelope gets into this argument with Eloise because Eloise puts eight and five together and realizes that she has been Lady Whistle Down this whole time after she wrote this very scandalous entry into her paper about Eloise. Eloise has kind of been avoided, which is why the Queen mistakes Eloise for Lady Whistledown, and Penelope did that to spare the Bridgerton family. But in the end, she lost her friend, where she let all these secrets out into her paper, and they have a really big argument about, you know, well, I actually did something You know you are nothing but you know this wall wallflower and it really tries to put into mind about what friendship means so this the season while fun fantastical deals with some pretty heavy topics love death friendship duty duty to family duty to yourself being true to yourself you know it's, it's somewhat a carryover from season one but it's treated in a much different way what were some things that we loved this season Madame Delacroix secretly getting involved in the Lady Whistledown where she helps transport all of the manuscripts because (laughs) Penelope gets caught. Penelope gets caught in the seedier side of town and Madame Delacroix sees her and they form this bond, which is very clever, where she'll sew the manuscripts to go to the printer in the lining of dresses and the trains and in the skirts she'll sew it in there take it to the uh printer they'll take it out send it back it's really clever how they handle that additionally queen charlotte is fantastic it is wonderful to see you know she's this wonderful sort of foil comical character but also Lady Featherington at the end of the season kind of redeemed herself for me. So the Featheringtons have always been this sort of foil, comical, nouveau riche family to pair opposite of the Bridgertons. This old money versus new money. And you can see that based off decor of their homes, color palettes, styling of everything. And it's very obvious to tell, you know, that they're, you know, these comical characters set against one 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 another the featherington storyline this season is that the new lord featherington comes in he's supposed to take care of them but he's actually penniless and the featheringtons have a mountain of debt they need to you know save themselves and so lord and lady featherington come up with this plot to where they'll lie about the gemstones mines in America, get everybody to invest, and then they'll take the money and run, go to America, and start a life anew. Well, Lord Featherington sort of starts to come on to Lady Featherington. She throws her only daughter that isn't married, aside from Penelope, at Lord Featherington to try to keep you know, everything in the family, to not have somebody come in and replace her but they ultimately find out that why lord featherington was going after all these other wealthier people is because he has no money so they hatch this plan and ultimately in the end she chooses her family over this plot she looks at him and goes i've taken what money i can to support my family and for us to get through to find something else I've forged this paperwork so that when one of my daughters has a son, they will inherit and get everything. You are to go back to America, run before you completely, you know, get ousted. You will return the money. I'm, I'm a mother above everything else. So, you know, Lady Featherington had a little bit of a redemption arc in the last episode. Another thing that stood out was Lady Danbury having a moment where she didn't know what to do. Anthony and Edwina are set to get married. Edwina is labeled as the diamond of the season. But in the end, the wedding doesn't go through. There's a huge scandal, and Lady Danbury just doesn't know what to do. And she opens up and goes, I I don't know what to do here. And there's a wonderful moment of humility there. So this season has a lot going for it in terms of characters, character arcs. Everybody has a clear character arc. Everybody has a clear objective. The writing's really good. The scenes are really tight. The um, stories are compelling. The it, I of course, as you would expect, I found myself instead of only watching one episode a night, I binged it in three days. It's a, it was a very compelling. And again, it, in some ways, you know, they didn't try to throw too too many twists in it. They kept the main twist. With Kate and this deception plot, we they kept, you know, the main goal simple. And they filled in moments with these other. St- it was a very good writing, very good direction. The settings were beautiful. So the objective points in terms of how the season went with performances, very good. But now let's get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty. Nitty One thing that stood out to me in the actual filming of it is how they depicted these vulnerable moments, which is something they took... Well, I'm not going to say took, but something that you can see was borrowed from Downton Abbey is how they film it. When it's these wonderful regal settings where the pier is out and whatnot, everything's very balanced, the camera work is very smooth it's very even shot and the the scenes sort of unfold naturally where when it's with someone in the lower class or if it's a fit of mania that's where they do the study cam and everything's uneven the lighting's off it's this visual storytelling with camera work as well to show that the character's not well the character's not okay versus when we're out in high society it's a wonderful way to use filmmaking to help aid in this juxtaposition of vulnerability versus how strict society is at the time down nabby does it with the juxtaposition of upstairs versus downstairs spencer did this whenever uh, princess diana was having a moment of mania or it was a dream sequence that's how the camera work would go it's something that i think now has become quite common but when used deliberately it's very effective and it was very effective here As we are a British history podcast, British, you know, British royal fanatic, what did the show get right? What did the show get wrong? And the show actually got, again, for a show that doesn't want to be historically accurate, they get a lot right. One thing that stayed consistent is the blunders of the marriage market on women at the time, these younger women, where, you know, the Featheringtons can't go out anymore. They've already had their three seasons of of, of presenting. They're these social pariahs where only... Out of the four daughters, only one has been married. You know they they can't be presented at court anymore because they've had their they've they've had so many turns. Where now it's Eloise's first season after the success of her sister in the previous one. So there's these you know these two different storylines where one is going out for the first time who has who wants nothing to do with this, and another family where they physically can't go out and be presented again because they've already had their chances. One thing the show talks about that is which will get to in a moment the running theme of marrying below your status lady mary of course mother of kate and edwina married below her status and it was a big scandal and when she gets reintroduced again back into english society after being gone for so many years that's the one thing that keeps being brought up is oh well the man she married and that is something true that was historical marrying below your class it was something that laws were enacted as well and certain their declarations were made to try to prevent that from happening which we'll get to in a moment but the idea of marrying below your status the ramifications of it what it meant for the family what it meant socially that is something that was very real one thing that i really loved is we got to see more of the madness of king george iii king george iii makes his made his like four minute cameo appearance that he had uh, we saw him a little bit last season but we see him even less this season. But he does the wedding episode. He makes an appearance, and we get to see, which was very true, the madness of King George the uh, Third. You know, for historical context, eighteen eleven was when the Regency Act was signed, and the Prince of Wales became the Prince Regent, took over duties as uh, took over duties from the from the king because the king, while not dead, was deemed ill fit to rule. And thus, you know, the prince took over. So, seeing this moment of George III with you no know, escaping and seeing him out, and he's you no know, delusional and crazy again, very real. That is something that was true. Now, whether he behaved that way, we don't necessarily know, but he was truly quote unquote crazy. Queen Charlotte did, in fact, have 15 children. When she said that, when they were touring the palace grounds, when they looked at the at the zebras, I you know had to research that to be sure. Was that 100%? I knew she had a lot of kids, but the number 15, yep, that is 100% true. Uh, King George III did, in fact, have his golden jubilee. He did have a golden jubilee in 1809. It marked 50 years on the throne. The jubilee marked you know, the entrance of this year, just as this year we are in a jubilee year with the queen's platinum jubilee. So... Those were things that the show got right. Of course, this marriage market, dichotomies of family, the idea of, you know, the brother being the head because he's the Viscount now, looking after the family, you know, balancing books and paying off debts where they don't necessarily pay things right away. They get things on credit and then they get sent the bill and they have to pay it that way. The idea of these precarious situations, what are we to do? We are a noble family that has no money. So they start selling silver, start selling paintings. And so the once very jam-packed Featherington household throughout the season starts to get more and more empty, which is fun visual storytelling if you start picking up on it. Now there's one thing that I understand what the show is trying to do, but once you notice it, you can't unnotice it. So the show is trying to when they mention the palace, they're trying to say that they're at Buckingham Palace, which historically is true. King George III and Queen Charlotte lived between Buckingham Palace and St. James's Palace. That's where they ma- mainly resided. The last monarch to reside at Hampton Court Palace was George II. The Prince Regent was, of course, at Carlton House. The show, the set designers, the producers, they used two common royal residences in in conjunction to try to make this fictitious Buckingham Palace. Because, of course, the Buckingham Palace that resided then in some ways doesn't exist anymore because of renovations done during Queen Victoria's reign. But the Buckingham Palace at that time was called Buckingham House because it was still under construction. Construction on Buckingham Palace didn't finish until Queen Victoria's reign. They use Hampton Court Palace and Lancaster House to Frankenstein together this Buckingham Palace. But if There's a big, wide panoramic shot where you can see the Tudor side of Hampton Court Palace in one of the corners. You can clearly tell, you know, Buckingham Palace isn't red brick, and it's not done in this sort of Baroque style. They even actually have some interiors of Hampton Court Palace, the King's stairwell they use. And then the the rest of Buckingham Palace's interiors they use is, of course, uh, Lancaster House. And Lancaster House, as we talked about last episode, has its own historical inaccuracies just based on the fact of certain safety features they can't remove, such as the bomb curtains, but also it's fitted with electric light. So they have to angle things a certain way so that you don't see the electric lights anymore because, you know, electricity didn't exist at this time point. So there's and I also think that Lancaster House was built, I think, in the 1820s. So even for the show, Lancaster House wouldn't have have existed. But I understand what the producers are trying to do. They're trying to Frankenstein this Buckingham Palace together by using royal residences that are at their disposal. But once you notice it, especially, you know, Frankensteining Hampton Court Palace and Lancaster House together, once you see it, you can't unsee it. So that's one thing that like irked me a little bit in terms of I, I, I see what you're doing. I know what you're doing. I understand why you're doing this, but I can't help but notice it. All the other sets were done either on a soundstage in, you know, pre-existing garden spaces that they would green screen out to make everything else, or they did use real aristocratic homes. I can't remember what house that they used, but they, you know, they did have some real homes that they used. Other than that, most of the show was actually filmed on sound stages and on back lots for um, Shondaland. Now, what did the show get wrong? One thing everybody, the big thorn in everybody's side, the bee in their bonnet, so so to speak, is the costuming. So the costuming for this show is, yes, it's Regency-era clothing in terms of lines— you know, the umpire waist, these you know, pastels, how the men are dressed. But they still take artistic liberty here with the styling, with the embroidery, with um, jewelry. And, you know, the costumes aren't 100% accurate. In fact, they're not even 80% accurate. Um, they completely ignore day wear. And everybody seems to be in some form of evening wear the entire show. Unless they're in, you know, their nightgowns or dressing gowns and stuff. When they're out in society, everybody's in some form of like evening wear, which is a little weird. You know, these type of heavy jewelry wouldn't necessarily be worn during the day. You know, there there actually was day wear instead of, you know, these type of hats. They'd be wearing bonnets. The hairstyles are a little different this season. They're a little bit more modern. They're, the women are wearing a little bit more makeup to make the show feel more modern. The colors are a little bit brighter. The lines are a little bit more streamlined. So while we get the flair and essence of the Regency in the clothing, it's nowhere accurate, which at this point... I don't have a problem with because the show openly doesn't try to be, but there are people that still comment and go, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong. I see you, I understand you, but there are more things about the show that are important than the costuming, but it's just weird that everybody, even in the morning, is in some form of evening wear. One thing that's really interesting to see, especially with Queen Charlotte, is this middle ground between natural hairstyles and historical hairstyles where the show just openly embraces it. And I think it's great. I think it's really cool to see this middle ground to make it accessible for modern audiences. Another thing that was really cool to see was the Indian wedding traditions before the wedding of Edwina, where it's something I don't 100% understand because I do not know the culture, but it was really cool to see where the show just takes a beat and they're talking and having this wonderful interaction, but they're doing this whole tradition and this whole ritual. That's really beautiful and really cool. So it's nice to see representation presentation in that corner as well. There are two things that I uh, want to point out that one could help benefit the show and one I'm happy they changed. So now we don't really see much smoking anymore. The we do see the queen use her snuff boxes which was accurate to to the period. People in the Regency who did smoke didn't like the smell of smoke on their clothes, so that that's where snuff boxes and snuffing tobacco comes from. And we see the Queen snuff tobacco quite frequently, so that's wonderful to see in that regard that, oh, they actually got this right, where they've stopped physically smoking and snuffing. So, improvement there. Good, good on you, show. The other one is where the hell is the Prince Regent? He would be a wonderful foil character to go opposite of the Queen, aside from Lady Whistledown. It is known that the king and queen did not have a great relationship with him. In fact, the king and queen thought all their sons were disappointments. They didn't like them. And it would be a wonderful little foil character to have alongside the queen. But also, one part of the regency that was very true is the prince regent at Carlton House threw wild parties, wild crazy parties, huge dinners, balls everywhere and it'd be wonderful to see that sort of folded in so that's my big question is we're in the regency period you have told us we're in the regency period we've seen king george III, we we've seen queen charlotte but where's the prince regent he'd be this wonderful foil character if we want to spend time with queen charlotte and sort of give the royals something else to push back on that'd be something that'd be fun to see i know it's not the goal of the show but it's just something that i think would be fun the big theme of the show is the Bridgerton family finding love, getting married and settled down. But the show this season finally talks about something that's very real and was real within the peerage was we talked about a little while ago, but now we're circling back to it is marrying below your status. So England actually had laws in place. Uh, one it doesn't really exist anymore. One still partially exists, but it only applies to the royal family at this point. But there were certain laws in place to forbade wild, fantasiful dalliances that led to romances of passion, to then marriages that weren't fit societally to advance ev- ev- everybody. The main goal of marriage at this time was to marry above your status, either make a lateral move or move up. You never moved down, which is why it was such a big deal in the first season when Daphne, the daughter of a Viscount, you know, yes, in the peerage at the top of this social hierarchy, but within this top, she's sort of in this middle ground area. You know, Viscount is actually towards the bottom of tiers of of titles. There's Baron, Viscount, Earl, Marquis, and then Duke. And so she's somewhere, you know, that family in terms of title rank is towards the bottom, regardless of how much money they have. And she becomes a duchess. So that's a very big deal. She's shot to the top as high as she can go. Where Lady Mary married someone below her. Eloise is fraternizing and flirting and talking to someone below her and it's seen as this big social no-no you can't do that which was very real the royal family had the royal marriages act of 1772 that forbid marrying below your rank and having these unsuitable matches because you couldn't marry without the sovereign's consent and if you didn't have the consent then it really wasn't something real and the whole point of it was to guard against marriages that could diminish the status of the royal household you know you had to get sovereign's consent from that from that point on it still marginally exists now I, I remember Harry had to get consent to get Megan. There's a whole royal proclamation there. William got consent to marry Catherine. Charles got consent to marry Diana. It's this whole big protocol that it's just sort of... Uh, procedure at this point but it's not 100 needed anymore there was the uh, the marriages act of 1753 that was still in effect during the regency where it stated that all marriages in england had to take place in a parish church or chapel either through you know there were three avenues either a special license a license or the special proclamation that had take place the special proclamations which were called bans, took the longest where a special license could happen very quickly the law this specific law didn't apply to members of the royal family because they had a law of of their own but this act of 1753 and the royal marriages act of 1772 the main goal was to sort of relinquish control out of the children and still put it back in in the in the parents one of the big law uh parts of the marriages act was that you couldn't be under the age of 21. And even if you were over the age of 21, you still had to have, there were certain age. there was a whole bunch of laws in place. There was a very brief one, in fact, that forbade essentially the youth from thinking independently. Because parents, it was all this... Combination of assets, of land. There was a whole bunch of things that went into play with marriages at at the time. It wasn't 100% about love, it was about familial duty, duty to wherever you were. So the fact that the show talks about, you know, Eloise can't talk to someone below her who's just a regular printer, Lady Mary can't marry someone who's not in the peerage and then getting shunned, scandals and rumors was very real. It's something that existed at this time. So again, kudos for the show for going there. And it would have been nice to explain a little bit more, but there is a wonderful dinner scene that goes into it where the Sheffields still haven't let it go. That our daughter married someone who wasn't someone we approved of, and she ran away. The whole argument that ensues, very real. So again, a show that prides itself on not being historically accurate in terms of costuming, in terms of casting, in terms of subject matter... Gets a lot right in terms of the environment that they put their cast in the marriage market, the marriage laws. They actually get a lot right. So, I have to really give kudos to Sean Deland and to the writers. But we've rambled on a lot. What are some cl- how can we put this review to an end? How can we put a final paragraph on it? Fantastic season. If you haven't watched it already, if you made it this far, you got a whole bunch of spoilers completely recommend 10 out of 10 they really knocked it out of the park with this one it's a wonderful compliment to the first season a different stance a different approach a different treatment of characters i really appreciated that we get to know more about the bridgerton family we get to spend more time with them we get to know more about truly what happened to dad bridgerton how it's a very sensitive topic you don't you do not talk you do not talk about it they have their own I burn for you moment where Anthony looks at Kate and goes I I despise you but you're all that I can think about you are the air that I breathe and yet I hate you which is a different stance of love the animosity towards it all they really got a great family dynamic you can see them having fun they do take a little bit more of a feminist stance with history but that's Eloise's character Eloise is this feminist foil character that's in the background that you Know it shows how you know this whole society's broken. That's what her character does, and she gets more time in the, in the limelight because, because of it. The characters felt real, m- much more three dimensional, more fleshed out and this season has a lot of rewatchable qualities. There's apparently a fencing scene where when Anthony falls, he splits his pants, and so there's fun things there. I haven't necessarily caught a lot of editing mistakes, but I still need to go back and and catch them. But what I did catch was of course in Hampton Court Palace and Lancaster House. But 100% recommend. Watch season 2, watch season 1, have some wine, have a charcuterie board, have some fun. I cannot recommend this enough but let me know on social media. What did you think? Did you enjoy the season? What stood out to you? Do you have similar thoughts? I would really like to hear below. So please sound off on social media whether you felt the same about Bridgerton season two. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And I enjoy doing reviews such such as this. If you would like to recommend topics for future episodes or let me know how I'm doing, you can drop me a line over at the official email, British Royal fanpod at gmail.com, or you can head over to the podcast blog, recommend topics that way. Of course, we have our blog, British Royal fanatic podcast We have our official social media, uh, the Twitter at fanatic underscore Royal in the official Facebook page, the British Royal fanatic podcast everywhere. Find them linked below. Head on over there. Join the podcast family. Really happy that you're here. If you feel so inclined and would like to donate to the podcast, there's an official PayPal link set up on Twitter. Click on that. And uh, if you are so generous and and decide to, to donate, your topic recommendation gets put right to the front of the line. Head on over to wherever you are listening to rate, review, subscribe and share. The more you do it, the more people can join the podcast family. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Stay safe out there and I'll see you in the next one.